Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. This is John chapter nine. Hopefully these are familiar verses to you, uh, beginning in verse one. And I also wanted to make this note here. I am using the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible uh, this week. The NIV has been causing me some consternation, so I've switched over to uh, the New Revised Standard Version. This is John chapter nine, beginning in verse one. It says, as he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. The word of God for the people of God. God. I'm hopeful that we can at least enter into that story and wrestle with, um, man, the immense power that Jesus is demonstrating in this miraculous act here. I'm gonna break it down just a little bit and use this story, as I've mentioned a couple times now, as a launching point into a discussion that I think oftentimes is left neglected within uh, the church. To to start us off, um, this is Jesus walking along, leaving the temple precincts, perhaps going uh, through a corridor where some scholars would say this is prime territory for people who are disabled, people who need help, people who have been ostracized from the community to sit and to beg and to wait for people of means to pass by so that they might be able to receive some money, some food, something to help them going. Jesus is walking along and he sees a man blind from birth. This is an important detail and I don't want you to miss it. What do we know about the blind man at this point? 
He's blind from birth. Tuck that away because as we continue on, it's going to show itself to be kind of odd. Rabbi, this is the disciples who haven't been involved in the text for quite some time. They just pop up back here on the stage and they begin to ask Jesus this question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? In this ancient context, which I would actually argue might not be so dissimilar from our own at times, uh, but at least in this moment, people dealt with what is called retributive theology, where if you do good, you get good, and if you do bad, you get bad. So when someone is suffering a disability, then the first immediate thought would be, who sinned to make this happen? Why is this person not able to see? The only answer that can be conjured up for this audience would be, something has happened. Either the parents or the man himself has done something so that he is not able to see. Now, as Josh pointed out, this is strange because we know that the man was born Blind. So the question about this, who sinned, the man or his parents, so that he was born blind? If we think about this for a second, the man would have had to sin when? In the womb. In utero, for this to, to happen, and you, when you go back to it, this is actually a thought in the ancient mindset that there was some activity in the womb that might initiate or cause uh, God or a divine being, because this isn't something that was just localized within Jewish culture, to, to enact some sort of judgment. One scholar, in fact, this is Craig Keener, he says, most would have accepted the proposal that blindness could derive from the parent's sin. Some Jewish people might go back to Exodus where it says that God is, going to, uh, is willing to punish people for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generations. Um, they, so they might say that this was due to the parent's sin. Some would even associate a birth defect or other malady with a sin of the mother during pregnancy. Now, this is the weird part. Some people in antiquity also believed in significant prenatal activity. Think just for a moment of Jacob and Esau and the wrestling in the womb. Some Jewish scholars would put a lot of weight into something like that, and this was also something that happened outside of, uh, again, the Jewish mindset into more Greek ideologies here. But this idea of significant prenatal activity, it would thus not prove surprising that some could also suspect prenatal sin. So when they're walking past, the question from the disciples is not how I often conjured it in my mind. What did this guy, what did he do while he was you know, a normal adolescent person, how did he sin to cause this to happen? I read right past the bit about him being blind from birth, and what they're asking is, what did this guy do in the womb to make God so angry that he would not be able to see, or what did the parents do that was so bad before this man was born to render him blind? Because we know that it can't be God doing this, someone else must be at fault for these sorts of things. Now, this is, this is crazy, crazy logic, but sometimes we kind of play into this, and I'll demonstrate that in a bit as, uh, as we get a little bit farther into this. Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This is important. He goes on to say, he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Now, it's possible, I think, to read this passage in a way that doesn't 
get God off the hook. In fact, it puts God on the hook because you could read it in a way that says he was born blind so that God could show how cool God was later on in this person's life when Jesus shows up after he's lived an entire life of being blind and begging. Notice the parents show up later in this story, but they're not here right now. The son is begging outside of the home And some people might be able to conjure this image of God inflicting blindness so that at one point, way down the road, when Jesus shows up, which God knew about, Jesus would do this cool thing, presto, poof. I was really struggling for words there. Like this, this was the plan for this man so that God's works might be revealed in him. I wanna push back on that reading a little bit. Uh, the NRSV makes it pretty um, ambiguous. It just says he was born blind that God's works might be revealed in him, I believe. In the Greek, the word here is henna. It introduces a subordinate clause. It's related to the stuff that goes before it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be read as a causal Clause. It can be read as a resultative clause. So it could be read like he was born blind with the result that God's works might be revealed in him. Do you see that the slight difference there? He was born blind so that God could show how good God was and how powerful God was versus he was born blind with the result that God could show how good and powerful he was. Do you see the, the, the minor difference there? I think this is really important because it wasn't as though God was inflicting this person with a, a deficiency of sight so that he could show how powerful he was, but rather the person had this sight deficiency and later God intervenes in their life. There's a result that is being brought to the table here. God's works are showing themselves to be powerful in his life. In other words, our sin, it does not cause disability. Now, for any, any thoughtful person in the room, you might wanna push at that a little bit, and I would allow you to, because we can all agree that sin has consequences, right? We can all agree that if we make poor decisions, that the, the ramifications of that might end up being something that could potentially hurt us or others, right? But what this text is saying here is that our sin is not the root cause of disability, which seems so so obvious, hopefully, to us, but it also uh, would like to say that, that God is not causing the disability in this passage in John chapter nine. The man is born blind, the result being God shows up in his life not God causes the blindness so that God can show himself to be powerful. This is a trope that shows up all throughout the Bible. I think this is important because in this text, it's not just about the miracle. If it was, the story would have stopped at verse seven, but it continues for 34 more verses. What seems to be at stake here is a handful of things. Who is Jesus? Where does he get this power? Uh, who is this person now that's been, that's been uh, blind and now received sight? Who are the Pharisees? Later we'll see there's this um, 
discussion as to their role in all of this. F.F. Bruce was a really famous biblical scholar. He says, Jesus' reply, it does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that after many years, his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would be an aspersion on the character of God. You might be sitting there thinking, man, Josh, you're going real hard at this. (laughs) Yeah, I am. Because there's something uh, at work in our culture, within the American church, within uh, certain segments that seem to push back against this. And it hurts when I hear it. And I know that it hurts when other people hear it. And to be quite frank, it's just really not that biblical. Even when we think it, it might be. Now, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He's talking about the time when he is going to be um, crucified, eventually to be resurrected, but he's, he's going away. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember, this has happened back in uh, John chapter eight. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In the symbol of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus over his shoulder, he's got the lampstands, the four lampstands with these big lights that are blazing behind him. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's not this ritual that happens at the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm the one who provides illumination, who dispels the darkness from the path that people are walking on. I am the one that if people would believe in me, they would have light. And now what we see here is Jesus leaving that teaching finding a man who has never seen the light of day his entire life, and he's getting ready to perform a prophetic sign act to allow this person to begin to see something that they have never seen before. It's not a cool party trick. It's not something that Jesus does just to flex some muscles. This is part of his ongoing sermon that's meant to indicate and identify who he is is he is the light of the world. And the author of John is linking these stories together in a super intentional way. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And you folks, you're about to see something that will demonstrate that. This guy, remember, they, ha- they are in conversation and the conversation as they might be passing by is, hey, Rabbi, we all know this guy was born blind. He's never seen a day in his life. What happened? What's up with that? Like they knew the man's story. They knew where he has been. They knew the significance of this um, disability in his life. And Jesus goes back to say, I'm about to show you something that will continue to demonstrate who I am. The light will shine in the darkness. And you've seen it over my shoulder in the, can- in the candle sticks that I'm better than, and now I'm going to show you something even more where you're going to see that light is breaking in to the darkness. But folks, this is just what God does all throughout Scripture. This is not, this is not a one-off where Jesus is just doing something that is, that is uh, distinct and separate from the rest of the Bible. Brace yourselves. Brace yourselves. Boom, that's a lot of Hebrew. <laughs> 
okay? This is Genesis 1.1. You could translate it in a couple different ways. You could say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or you could say, um, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, there's a lot of discussion on how we're gonna translate this first. Uh, really, it's a phrase in and of itself, in the beginning, or it could be uh, rendered as an adverb. But here's the important part. In the beginning, God is going to create the heavens and the earth, and this is leading into the next verse here. Now the earth, it says, was formless and void. I'm not even gonna talk to you guys about tohu vabohu, because we we've already been down that road, right? Old news, this is, a, this is like a wild and waste sort of thing. This is, this is a chaos sort of term. This is happening, the, the, the earth, it's formless and void, note. That doesn't mean that there isn't a heaven and an earth. That just means that it's all messed up. It's like this primordial, watery mess. Think of the snow globe and all the stuff in the snow globe, and that's what it's like. And then God's going to get to creative work where he begins to shape and move and put things where they're supposed to go. God, in the beginning, is taming chaos, and he is ordering the known universe. Now, for the science people in the room that are struggling with that, you say, well, Josh, what about creation ex nihilo? <laughs> creation out of nothing. Okay, not in Genesis 1. There's a bit in Hebrews where we talk about that, but not here. Here, what, what the author is expecting to be the case, God is taking this mass of stuff and moving and shaping and building and creating. Now, the earth that was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. We're not even gonna talk about the mythical to home. We're not even gonna talk about the sea monsters and the stuff that was always impending and threatening these people. We're not gonna go down that road. All you need to know is there was bad stuff looming and God wasn't having it because it says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the ancient world, this was scary stuff, but in the first couple of verses, God is ordering chaos. He's taming the, the, the wildness. He's putting things in order and then in verse three it says, and God said, let there be light in the darkness as I am moving and shaping and creating and sustaining. This has always been part of the DNA of this story. God brings light into darkness and God does not let disorder rule because God orders disorder and God takes care of chaos, which is why we have this man who has been born blind sitting and and, and waiting and hoping and Jesus shows up with the result that he sees. Light invades darkness as it always has done. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind with the result that God's work might be revealed in him. And let me tell you something, friends. I'm about to do it right now in front of y'all's face. Light invades the darkness. I'm calling this an excursus, okay? Uh, Because in all of my prep, 
I wanted to go down this rabbit trail because I think it's massively important and, and ties back into what I was saying a bit earlier. The way that we talk about stuff is not this way. We do not talk about this is how it is with the result that God will intervene. We almost talk causally about what God does in our lives. See if these fit. There's purpose in our pain. If you have pain, there's purpose in it. And if you have pain that's purposeful, then God, who's the creator, has initiated the purposeful pain in your life to allow you to gain something from that. This, whatever it is that you're going through, this trial, this tragedy, this death, this, this diagnosis, this bill of health, this, this hardship in your life, this is a test of faith. And usually, the way that that is talked about is God has inflicted it upon you, and it's up to you to learn something from it, because that's the whole point. The reason why, if we can get crass for a moment, the reason why people become sick is so that they can learn something. The reason why people go through tragedies is so that they can learn something or gain something from their experience, and God must have placed it in their path because God will never give you something that you can't handle. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason. It's in there. But the way that we understand it, it makes God the author of every atrocity that we face in fact, one author who has now been diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, she's a young aspiring professor at Duke Divinity School. She is smart as a tack. She's written some great stuff. She's got like a three-year-old kid at home, a loving husband. And when she received this news of her diagnosis, people began to say things to her like, oh, this is God's plan. To which her husband would say, oh, really? Tell me about that. Tell me about that plan. What is it that God is wanting to teach us or to show us in this? She even says that the subtext of this line is even evil is God's will because when you think about it, when we say dumb stuff like everything happens for a reason, we legitimize every rape, every abuse, every diagnosis of cancer, everything that this world throws at us and we make God into the author of that. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to take a step back or two before we make that claim. Our image of God and suffering, sometimes it, it looks more causal than it is. And whenever we face something, perhaps the tendency is to go back and think that God is behind it. In my best scholarly opinion, <laughs> I just don't know if that's the best way of thinking about things I believe as much as I'm standing here in front of you sweating profusely, that God mourns when you mourn, weeps when you weep. And it's not as though God is powerless, but God is not inflicting these things upon his people to teach us something. Is it possible for us to learn from our tragedies? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that God is placing them in front of us 
with the certainty that we will nearly perish as we come to them in our lives. I want, I want to hold that there because I think as we talk about this, this text, these things go, they go together a little bit here. And I want to talk just for a moment about the difficulty of healing stories in the Bible. And I don't know if this, um, I, I, I do know, I think there's people in this room that can understand what I'm, I'm saying right now. Even if I lost you five minutes ago, I think we can come back here for a moment because we've all been at, at certain points in our lives when we've prayed really big prayers so that our sick friend will be healed. And we've seen these stories in the Bible where Jesus shows up and says, see, my man, and he does. Well, sorry, he spits and makes the mud and puts on. He does, he does a lot. There's some steps to it. Um, but we've prayed prayers that have not gone answered in the ways that we have hoped for. We've, we've held out for miracles that didn't show up. We've held out for healing that didn't take place. So when we come to this story, maybe some of you, maybe a small percentage of you have this little tinge of hurt, anger, remorse, I don't know what you would call it, but you think, why that guy and not my friend or my family member or whoever? Why didn't they receive this? And there's a difficulty in, in these healing stories in the Bible because we can go to these lived experiences where it doesn't make any sense and we have to come back to, well, I guess God chooses to do this, but not chooses to do this. And for a lot of thoughtful people, that's just not satisfying for us. Jesus says in this, in this passage, he says, um, or excuse me, the author uh, of John says, when he had said this, when Jesus had been talking to his friends, it says that he spat on the ground, he made mud with saliva. There's lots of sorts of healing properties uh, in the ancient mind with regard to saliva, maybe even some sort of, a, of an ointment that's being made, actually the spreading of the mud. It's like an anointing type term in the Greek here. So Jesus is making this little mud pie with the saliva, which might have some healing properties in it, uh, according to the Jewish mindset, spreads the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Remember, this is the pool where the priests were getting the water to dump on the altar. This is a really important site for a temple worshiper at the time. And he's telling him to go and to do this. And then when he went, he washed and he came back and he was able to see. And I think that a lot of us don't know what to do with that. Now, as my friend wrote in her really good book uh, that just came out last month, she said, most Western interpreters who read the beginning of John 9, they don't decide that healing in the way of Jesus means that when we meet a man who is blind, we should spit in the dirt, make mud from our saliva, and rub it in his eyes. We acknowledge, whether implicitly or explicitly, that the same actions have different implications in differing cultural contexts. Right? We don't do what Jesus did, even if we're wearing the very fashionable WWJD bracelet circa 1997, okay? Um, we don't do what Jesus did in this context, but we still have to figure out what are we supposed to do? When somebody shows up and they need healing, what does that look like? How do we engage that? Because we have these situations where it hasn't worked out in the past, We've got these stories from others or perhaps our own lived experience where it seemingly has worked. We don't really know how to bring those two things together. And we don't really understand what's going on with all of, all of this, this text here. And as I said in the beginning, this is just a jumping off point for us. And really what I want to do this evening uh, is make a couple of proposals for us as we're looking at this text. And I think it's stuff that doesn't oftentimes get, get talked about. The first proposal would be 
that we should not view healing as limited to bodily transformation. I know, it seems like a massive cop-out right off the bat. But within scripture, um, this is not the, the MO. Healing was not reduced just to someone who's blind receiving sight or someone who is lame receiving the ability to walk. There was so much more that went around that. And in fact, you could also say that thinking about it in this way, it does a disservice to the people with the disability. When we think about this being the only slice that matters I think that we're missing a lot of the humanity that is brought to the table. For example, this is a quote from Canada Moss. She's a professor over in the UK. She did her dissertation, I believe, at Notre Dame. She says, I think that if I'm not disabled in heaven, I'm not myself. So I certainly hope I'll still be disabled in heaven. Sit with that for five seconds. As mostly able-bodied people, we have no concept of that. Instead, what we usually see is our own felt guilt and shame, and we inflict it upon others. She goes on and says, I certainly hope that I don't feel pain in heaven. That seems antithetical to what heaven is, but I still want to be me. And I don't think that I would be me without the conditions that I have. It's shaped who I am, how I think, what I do. Everything about my life involves this part of myself, which is integral to who I am. Oftentimes, that goes unthought of in the conversations that we might be having. I've even joked in sermons before when Jesus goes up to someone, I forget the actual um, disability that was happening, but he says, do you want to be well? And I have no concept of like, oh, of course he wants to be, of course, yes, of course this person wants to be well. When you're engaging in these conversations, perhaps there might be a different response or at least a um, a more thoughtful response. I thought this was hilarious. Um, this was in the same article, which, which I'll tie back in in a minute. And on being asked if she would like to continue being blind in heaven, another person, uh, Lindell Bywater, says, oh, I hope not. That isn't because I think there's anything wrong with being blind, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it thus far. <laughs> That's not why. What, why? I just want to be able to get in a sports car and drive it. <laughs> That's really what I wanna do, so I'm really hoping that I can see in heaven so I can drive a sports car. There's all sorts of theological stuff we could unpack there. The primary one being, are there sports cars in heaven? Okay, that, that might be where some of y'all's mind went there, but like here, I just, I'm, I'm at least demonstrating that, that who should be leading this conversation? It is not me. It's the, the people with the disabilities that are often pushed to the side within church conversations and contexts. Bodily transformation, it's only one aspect of healing in the Bible. You all know when like the, um, the woman with the issue of blood shows up and just wants to touch the hem of Jesus's garment and he says, power has gone out from me. It's really weird. <laughs> Someone's touched me. Well, of course, Jesus, there's thousands of people. No, power has left my body. I know when that happens. (laughs) But he heals her, but it's not just the issue of blood that needed to be healed. It's the fact that she was ostracized from the community 
and now she's brought back in. The leper that shows up and Jesus touches him. Unheard of, because in the Jewish mindset, that's a, that's a, com, a, a communicable disease. That's a word, right? Okay, thank you. To touch someone with leprosy inflicts you with at least being unclean. I don't know if the mindset would be that you would also get leprosy, but you're at least unclean, ceremonial unclean, and not able to participate in temple stuff. But Jesus is jumping over those social mores to allow someone to feel human physical contact again and to know their worth again. It's not just the bodily healing that needs to be addressed. It's the reintroduction into the community. And we'll look what happens to the blind guy next week uh, with regard to this reintroduction into the community. It's fascinating. Um, finally, again, Bethany McKinney Fox says, in addition to bodily transformation, we must also consider whether a cure or removal of the individual's disability is the only way for this bodily transformation to take place, or whether perhaps access to assistive technology, pain management techniques, quality health care, and other resources might also be a way for a person to experience healing transformation in our context. And if you're anything like me, you might be thinking, oh, that's a cop-out. What we're saying is we can't heal people, so now we have to rely on assistive technologies and pain management. But what I would submit to you is, is this not loving our neighbor? Is this not the call of the kingdom to fight and advocate for people who are in pain, who not legally or according to some sacred text have been ostracized from community, but have maybe felt that because of our own uncomfortability with certain situations? This is not a cop-out. Do it and then get back to me and let me know if it is a cop-out or not. This is the work of the church, friends. And just because our context is different than the first century context, it doesn't minimize the importance or the beauty of being involved in the lives of people in this moment in time. Another uh, proposal here would be the importance of presence with compassion and relatedly the necessity of a positive reception of the person receiving healing. There's a couple of different facets here that I'd like to, to touch on. Um, the first one being the importance of, of presence. And again, Bethany says it's impossible for Christian communities to be places of healing for and with people with disabilities if there were not any individuals with disabilities physically present in the regular life of the community. Now, I'm not asking you to look around, and I'm not asking us to start like having pointed advertising for certain demographics of people. We're a pretty homogenous group, and in the same way that I would love us to to, to see us be a multicultural, intergenerational, beautiful conglomeration that hints of the kingdom of God, I don't think that that means that we show up to certain points and parts of town to try to get demographics to be represented here. However, it does seem to be the case to me that you will only ever have people in your body who feel comfortable within the community. So one of the most brilliant things, uh, Bethany actually planted a church a couple years ago 
She's a fuller PhD. She did uh, her work in disability studies. Um, and she's just playing at a church called Beloved Everyone Community. And one of the things that they do is they attempt to minister to people of different abledness and they structure their entire service around meeting the needs of that diverse community. So oftentimes she'll be on Facebook saying, hey, I'm hanging out here in the bathroom and I just want you to take a, take a note here. This is gonna get less weird uh, for a second. And she'll take a picture of where the paper towel dispenser is placed on the wall. And sometimes because of how the tiling is, it's really tall. So for someone who is wheelchair bound, they can't access that. And the restaurant or the, the school or the what have you doesn't, they're not even conscious of, of that. And since I saw that one crazy picture, whenever I go into the bathroom, I start, I'm immediately thinking like, oh, well, this couldn't be utilized by someone in a, in a different situation than, than my own. So while it's true that it's impossible for communities to be places of healing for and with people of disabilities if, if they're not there, it might be a, a good first step for us to start looking around and thinking if we are able uh, to, to access and to be present with compassion for people that don't look like us, act like us, think like us with different abilities than us. Our lack of imagination is oftentimes the main inhibitor of this because there's a way that we do things. You show up, we sing three songs, I do some announcements, we'll do something like this, we sing a benediction, we take some communion and we go home. And if something were to invade the space and the sanctity of that liturgy, then we would be uh, hyper alert on that and wonder how do we minimize the threat to our normalcy? Follow? So a couple years ago, I saw this article of a church, large church, I actually forget which one it was, but the article was about um, a person who, I forget what the disability was, but they, they had a difficult time being quiet. So they had to make some, some noises while they were in the space. And the church didn't know what to do with that. So what the church ended up doing was removing the person from the service because it was impacting the normalcy of the people in the seats and the church had no imagination to deal with the issue as it was unfolding and as it was happening. I also think that our lack of sensitivity is an issue here in most cases. And if we think about this, it's, it's the quality of presence that we offer. And this isn't just about how we treat uh, persons with multiple disabilities. This goes with any new person who shows up in this space. Are we welcoming? Are we compassionate? Are we engaging? Do we, do we give off the idea that we care about you and we want you to be a part of this? Or has this become an insular click family that doesn't want their Thanksgiving meal wrecked by having to pull up a new chair for somebody that we don't know? Crazy cousin Lindsay has a new boyfriend and we don't want him to be here. Is that how we think about things or are we able to accommodate folks? Part of this quality of presence too is um, not, this is gonna sound stupid, not praying for people who don't want you to pray for them. <laughs> Jesus in this, and I wish there was a little bit more feedback here, but when Jesus shows up, he's having this conversation with his friends and then all of a sudden he's making these mud pies and he's putting it on the eyes of the person. You could say like, I told my friends, like, I wish that there was a, an extra verse in that passage where it says, and Jesus said, may I touch your eyes with my mud pies, please. 
And the person says, yes, please, I would appreciate that. But there is no, none of that, so you have to deal with the inference of like, oh, well, this person went to the temple, they were healed, that he interacts with Jesus later, it seems like it's all kosher, it seems like Jesus was not invading personal space, but Christians oftentimes are really good at invading personal space because we feel some kind of duty that if someone has a disability of any sort, we must pray for them. We must heal them, and it's highly disrespectful. Because in many contexts, these people don't feel that that's something that needs to be healed. And again, I, I might not be the one qualified to talk about this. I'm just bringing the observations that I've received to the table here. But the reason uh, from those quotes that I showed you about the woman who wanted to drive the sports car, the article was about this guy who was on the Metro and somebody came up to him. He um, is blind and somebody, some Christians randomly came up to him and said, can I pray for your healing? You know, the, the guy just, it, it's, it's anger-inducing. The only thing that the well-meaning Christian was seeing was a disability, not a person, with a story, with anything that they could bring to the table. If we were just going about praying for anyone who needed prayer, that would be all of us. I'm a basket case on most days. I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. Like if some Christian could have the, the sense to see that, that's the prayer, you know? It's like, you're, you're a wreck, let me, let me intercede for you. Like, but we don't do that, we only see what we're able to see. And finally, providing room for healing and also being healed. I know that this story brings up really difficult conversations because we don't know what to do with it because we've seen healings that don't take place and maybe we've even begun to think that God can't heal people but if we can provide a space where healing happens, when we think about healing holistically, perhaps at the same time, and I almost think this is just as important, if not more important, we would also be healed ourselves of our prejudice, of the way that we have limited the work and the calling and the giftedness of certain people, the way that we minimize stories to what we see and what's external, perhaps it's not just the issue of what to do about these healings, but perhaps there's another underlying, even more important issue that goes unaddressed, namely, how do we heal ourselves from our own jacked up way of thinking? And how do we then participate as light bearers who can dispel darkness in the lives of the people around us? Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.